children, I'm, I want you to grab your Bibles for just a minute, you know, or for the whole time, but so grab your Bibles, and uh, I want to read the passage again that uh, Mr. Demers just read, and I want to see if you can hear the difference. Um, I'm going to actually start in verse 19 uh, of chapter 22 and read until verse 1 of chapter 24. Um, so follow along, okay? So Abram returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram himself was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Did you get lost? Yeah. What did I do? I basically skipped everything <laughs> Mr. Demers read except for verse 19, right? Um, you, but you probably noticed if you were listening, I, if I read it again, you would probably notice you were, you were probably intently watching and then trying to figure out what I did. But if you were listening, you probably realized that the story still made sense. At least it did for me. We can go from verse 19 through 24.1 and skip all of 23 and it seems like everything's okay. So the question we have to ask is, why chapter 23? Right? If we can read from where we did to the end of where we did and it still be okay, is chapter 23 necessary? And the answer is yes. And why do we know that it's necessary? Because the Lord inspired Moses to include it. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's important about this chapter? Well, some believe that the last five verses of chapter 22 that we skipped last week are included to point us, to show us Isaac's future wife, Rebecca. And that's, that's okay. I, I understand that, and you do because, I mean, she's mentioned but I think there are two other possibilities that I think fit more with the purpose behind uh, their inclusion. One, notice that Abraham receives word about his brother Nahor. And his brother Nahor lived in either Ur or Haran. Now, I want you to file that away. Just kind of hold on to that, where he lived. And secondly, the news that he received was specifically about his brother's 12 children. And boys and girls, let me ask you this question. How many children did Abraham have at this point? All right, good. I see a lot of ones. Now, remember, we, we could say two. If you said two, you're right, right? He had Ishmael. But we say one because in Scripture that we read last week, Isaac was the one, the beloved son whom he loved, Right? And it's the one son through whom the promises would be received. So we say one. And yet, who had been promised? His brother had 12. Abraham had one. Who had been promised as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore? Abraham, who only had one. Now hold that here, okay? 
Is he in Haran or or, or Ur? And here he has um, fewer children than his brother. Now, when we read through chapter 23, you notice when Mr. Demers read that the phrase buried Sarah, his wife, occurred once, but the phrase property for a burying place occurred three times, the phrase bury my dead occurred three times, and the phrase bury your dead occurred four times. So what does that tell us? That this chapter is obviously telling us something about death particularly about Sarah's death and burial. And when we put that purpose of of death and and burial, particularly Sarah's, with where Abraham's brother Nahor lived and the information that we received about the children, what we receive is both the context and the story that speaks volumes about the promises of God that had not been revealed yet and the faith that Abraham and Sarah exhibited regarding those promises that hadn't been revealed yet. And there are, of course, applications for us as well. You're going to find the outline in the back of your bulletin. You'll notice the title of the sermon. It was, um, I put that together before the bulletins were printed, and before I wrote the conclusion, I would rephrase, I would, I would change the title, and I'll mention that a little later. But the outline looks like this, the certainty of death, the sorrow of death, and the hope in death. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, as your word is preached this evening, would you convict our hearts and renew our minds and strengthen our faith and fortify our wills by your spirit? May we receive your word gladly and with anticipation. Please fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Attend to me as I do this work. I pray, Father, that you would use me as you see fit for the sake of your church, for Christ and his church. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we read, Sarah, Moses tells us that Sarah died at the age of 127. And that shouldn't come to a shock to us because we've already heard her described as being old and advanced in years. If you have a King James Version, it's not as nice. It says that she was old and well stricken in age. We also shouldn't be surprised because death is certain. Death is certain for everyone. Even though this is the first death recorded since Terah's death in Genesis 11, and even though Sarah is the first woman whose death and burial is recorded in Scripture, Sarah is simply in a long list of people who have died. If you remember chapter 5, Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died, Kenan died, Mahalalal died, Jared died, Methuselah died, Lamech died, and we read in chapter 11 that not only did Terah die, but Noah died. Other than Enoch, who was not and whom God took, everyone dies. Death is certain because it is a consequence of the fall and and sin. And brothers and sisters, no matter how hard we might try, no matter how well we may eat, no matter how many miles we might run, we may improve the quality of our lives. But we will never, 
We, we will not because we cannot increase or prolong the days of our life. There isn't an anti-aging cream or enough vitamins and supplements that will delay the inevitable. According to Job, our days are determined because the Lord has established limits that we cannot pass. Genetic engineering or re-engineering will not prevent or reverse the aging of cells. And though they may try to tell us AI will not enable us to live forever in some type of android body or in a virtual world of our choosing, death will come to all of us at its appointed time. And as those of you may know who have experienced death of a loved one or family or friend, death, with death comes sorrow. And we see this in this passage as well. Look at the end of verse 2. Abraham, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He did what you would expect a husband would do after he loses his wife of a hundred years or more. John and Kathy, you're halfway there. In the words of Gordon Wenham, the terms mourn and weep together suggest that Abraham did not just weep aloud, but carried out the traditional mourning customs, such as rending his garments and disheveling his hair and cutting his beard and scattering dust on his head and fasting. But this is quite different from the typical responses to death that we see today, particularly in a culture that seeks to avoid death at all costs. It's more common today for obituaries to speak of people passing than it is uh, for people to die. We read of services that are called celebrations of life rather than funerals. And of course, the many eulogies are filled with more comic relief than they are meaningful reflections of the life and legacy of the one who's died. And any overly demonstrative behavior like bewailing would seem to be excessive. But no matter how we might try to eliminate or lessen the blow, again, those of you who have experienced death, you know that the sorrow remains. It doesn't go away. The mourning is inevitable. The grief is real. And the weeping comes. In the words of Calvin, and that's all rightly so. And in the words of Calvin, to feel no sadness at the contemplation of death is barbaric. But here's the good news, because not only does our passage show us the certainty of death and, and show us the sorrow of death, it also acknowledges and actually stresses the hope of death. The rest of the chapter from verse 3 through 20 focuses on the hope in death. After this appropriate time of mourning, there was a, an appropriate time, and, and Abraham mourned during that appropriate time, and when that was through, uh, Moses said that he, he arose and he left Sarah, and he went in search of a place to bury her. And this is where those, first, or those last five verses of chapter 
22 come in hand because rather than go and do what would have been the customary thing and go back to Ur or Haran to find a place to bury his wife where his ancestors and her ancestors would live or, and, and have lived and bury her there, he began searching for a place there in Canaan. And more specifically, he began to look for a place near where the Lord had established his covenant with him and ratified that covenant. He entered the city of Hebron, and he found the elders and the prominent men who were there at what was called the the gates of the city, and and he opened up negotiations, and he took a one-down posture, and what that meant was, what that means is he humbled himself and he acknowledged himself as a sojourner and a foreigner that was in their presence, and that basically meant that he, he had no legal right. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't a resident or he wasn't a citizen, and so he had no legal right to anything, to, to no land, had, had no rights of him, uh, uh, in and of himself, and really had no position to even negotiate. And yet he wanted to enter into those negotiations, and so he's letting them know that he acknowledges that he is, he's at their mercy. And then he told them that he was in need of a permanent place to bury his wife. Well, the Hittites responded very kindly, and they responded by saying they didn't see him as a foreigner, but actually they saw him as a very distinguished and respectable, uh, respectable leader in their midst. And he had obviously found favor in the eyes of his God. And so they said, listen, you just take whatever, whatever grave tomb you want of ours and use it to bury your wife. But as generous as that seemed, and as appreciative as Abraham was, that wasn't what he had in mind. He didn't want to borrow a grave. He didn't want to receive one as a gift because he didn't want anything to be taken back. And he didn't want anything to be held over him that could be used to manipulate him later. He wanted to purchase a property of his own. So he continued the conversation in the presence of everybody, but he honed in his focus of negotiation to one particular person. And he stood and he bows in respect. And then he says, thank you, thank you. But if you don't mind, I'd rather buy one of Ephraim's caves, Ephron's caves, particularly the one at the end of his field. And all of you, he says, all of you can serve as witnesses to this, that I am willing to pay full price. Well, Ephron had obviously negotiated deals like this before because he generously offers to give him not only the cave, but the field. And Abram responded. He's like a, Ephron's like a used car salesman, Right? Here's the car. Hey, I'll throw in the wheels for free. I'll throw in new tires. I'll give you that extended warranty, right? And Abraham responds, as expected in the deals of this nature, says, thank you. Thank you for that offer. I'll I'll take you up on that offer. I'll, I'll take the field too, but I want to pay full price. So Ephron recognized the leverage he had due to Abraham's emotional state and his need, and so he tossed out 
a price of 400 shekels of silver, way overpriced. We know it was overpriced due to land transactions that we read about later in Scripture. Right? He basically wants him to pay a Bentonville price for this piece of property. And then he says, what's 400 shekels to, to friends? And then Abraham does something that probably Ephron didn't expect or anybody else expected. And he starts weighing out the silver. And he pays him full price. And they finalize the agreement. The formal agreement is made with everybody present. Right? This is a done deal. And so Abraham is, is given the deed to the land. He has the cave in the field. They're his. He's not in debt to anyone, but he is now a legal owner of land in Canaan. And we ask ourselves, why is this significant? Well, let's remember what we've been talking about since Genesis 12, right? God had made a couple of promises to Abraham. He had promised, as I've already said, descendants, as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And he had promised also the entire land of Canaan. But at the point of Sarah's death, Abram's brother Nahor seemed more likely to have that many descendants than Abraham did because, Nah because Isaac's cousins outnumbered him 12 to 1. But Abraham still believed. So much so that he bought a small piece of overpriced property in Canaan. It was way too much money, but he did so because the God that had promised him descendants had also promised him land. And his purchase was a way of saying, we're not going back, we're staying. We're staying because this is ours. And not just this, but it's all going to be ours. You see, in other words, the, the purchase of that plot was an act of faith. It was actually a down payment for what was yet to come. Just as Isaac was the first descendants of what would be many Abraham may have only had one son, and he may only have had one small plot of ground, but he believed that God was going to keep his promises and that his family was going to become a family of, of nations, and that all of the land of Canaan would be his. And he also believed, as we've been talking about, he also believed that the land of Canaan pointed to much more, much, much more. Yes, Sarah died, and Abraham would die too, but death was not the end of the promises. The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham and Sarah died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they were seeking a homeland. They desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So what do we take away? 
What do we take away tonight? Let me, let me see if I can tie this up into something that we can hold on to, that we can cling to. I believe we can summarize this passage by saying, Abraham grieved with hope. That would be the title, should be the title, um, and would have been had I uh, worked on the conclusion prior to Friday morning. Abraham grieved with hope. So with the help of Guy Waters, I want us to think about how we should grieve with hope. I want us to think about three things in, uh, in particular. I want us to consider how we should grieve the death of believers, how we should grieve the death of non-believers, and how we can help others grieve our own deaths. Okay? First, let's... Let's consider how we should grieve the death of believers. The gospel, as you well know, doesn't eliminate our sorrow. The gospel doesn't hold back our tears. We experience the sorrow. We experience the tears. But the gospel does transform them. It does change them. So in the midst of our mourning and in the midst of our weeping, we should accept the encouragement that Paul gave to the church at Thessalonica. It was our New Testament reading. In his first letter, he encouraged them, he encourages them to grieve hopefully in light of the gospel rather than grieving hopelessly according to their pagan practices of the past. Let me read the passage that Grant read earlier. Chapter 4, he says, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word, a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with those words. Paul lists several blessings and promises here that are, are to be used for, for those that he's writing to, to cling to and to be encouraged in the face of death. By faith, he says, we are to believe that Jesus died. He died to pay the penalty of our sin. He died to take on the curse of the law. He died to satisfy the wrath of God and to remove the guilt of our sin. But by faith, we're also, Paul says, to believe that he was raised from the dead. His resurrection assures us that the Father accepted His payment on our behalf, and, and His resurrection assures us that we will be resurrected as well. By faith, we're to, we believe that the souls of Christians who die, though absent from the body, are immediately present with the Lord, and they remain united to Him. By faith, we, we believe that the bodies of Christians who die when Christ returns will rise and they will be clothed with glory and reunited with their souls. By faith, we believe that Christians who are alive when Christ returns will be reunited with those who have died. And by faith, we, like Abraham and Sarah, believe that 
we will all live with Him forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, that place where there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more weeping. That place that Canaan pointed to. Listen to these words of Guy Waters. He said, death is about separation. Our hope is about reunion. Soul and body will be forever reunited gloriously. The believing dead and believers who are alive at the second coming will be reunited. And all believers will be gathered to Christ forever. Our hope reminds us that death is not the final word. In the providence of God, it is one step toward the grand accomplishment and realization of God's purpose to gather His people to Himself in Jesus Christ. This hope cannot but transform our experience of grief. We certainly grieve in view of the tremendous loss that death has brought into our lives, but we grieve in view of the blessings, and I'll add of the promises, that are sure to come. That's how we grieve believers who have, who have died. What, what about, how, how do we grieve the death of non-believers? How do we grieve, how do we grieve when someone who, who we love dies and, is, and as far as we know, they've never professed Christ or they've never exhibited any consistent fruit of righteousness that is evidence of a living faith in Him? Some of you know all too well that grief. And you know that that grief of that death is only magnified and increased in this situation because there's little expectation and little hope for their salvation. So how, how do we respond in faith in those situations? Well, we respond by praying. We respond by praying, and we pray for God to grant us, and those who have and are experiencing that same type of grief, the grace and the mercy that we need to rest in God, to trust in Him and His wisdom, and to remain content that His purpose, purposes, though they are mysterious, are always pure. We pray and we, and we ask God to grant us the grace and mercy that we need to remember and cling to the fact that though His divine providence is at times dark and very hard for us to accept, that He, is, he Himself is always good and holy and righteous and fair and just. Paul tells us that he has mercy on who he wills and he never acts, never acts unjustly or unfairly. We ask for him to grant us, we pray and ask for us to grant us the grace that we need to remain confident in his character that could be questioned, but his, his character is never in question and his integrity always remains consistent. But we need His help in remembering that and clinging to that. We also need Him, we, we, we pray and ask for Him to save those who were close to the one who has died and are themselves lost. We pray that He would use the death as a means to draw them to Himself. 
And if someone asks, if someone asks if we believe the one who died is in a better place, we should simply point them to what we know is true rather than what we, what we don't. And what we know is true is that eternal life is found in Christ alone. He is our only hope for salvation. The gospel is the best comfort we can offer those who are grieving, no matter who it is. Finally, I want us to consider how we should help others who will eventually be grieving our own deaths. Beloved, the greatest gift that we can give those who love us is a clear, confident profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether that be verbally or in writing or through audio or video means or through all of the above, we need to let those we love know that we are clinging to the Lord Jesus alone for our salvation. We need them to know that we have no hope apart from Him. And of course, we need to make sure that the life we are currently living and how we approach our deaths when the time comes, if we have the time to prepare, both of those things, we need to, we need to make sure that they're consistent with the words that we share. May our lives exhibit the truth that we proclaim. Again, in the words of Guy Waters, preparation for death never begins at death. Whether someone else's or the imminent arrival of our own, preparation for death begins right now. By drawing close to Jesus Christ and finding grace in Him to face death and to encourage others who will face, who will, others who will face death. Like Abraham and Sarah, death is not the promises. Death is not the end of the promises for us. Death is not the end for you or for me. Thanks be to God that all of His, all of his promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. He is our comfort in both life and death. Because in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, we are not our own. But we belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood and has set us free from the power of the devil. He also preserves us in a way that without the will of our Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. goes on to say, indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We're His. We, we can live this life as sojourners, exiles, and strangers, and foreigners because this is not our home. In the words of Paul, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 
In Him we also, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in Him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? He's a guarantee. He is a down payment of that inheritance that is ours until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We have hope in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You now enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church I pray. Amen. Amen.